You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. We're going to talk today about the issue of social justice. And there's a lot of parallels with conversations that we've touched on in the class throughout the year that our culture is having under the umbrella of social justice. And I wanted us to consider more closely what our interaction ought to be with these issues and, and conversations and how these things intersect with what we've been saying. And we've been kind of touching on this in various levels all year, and I just wanted to spend some time on it. How many of you have heard of the term social justice? Oh, good, everybody. Like, that's good. And um, it's an interesting thing, uh, project, I guess, that our culture is engaged in. And I wanted to talk about it because sometimes it's just a term and it's, it's just out there and you don't really even know what it means. That's right. Like, what, yeah. what, what does that really even mean? I, I don't know. Is it just, because whatever it is, I don't want to be against it because it's, it's for helping people. But I don't know what it's supposed to look like. And I don't really have a very clear definition of what social justice even is or how I'm supposed to think about it as a Christian. Right. So I want to kind of begin to tease that out probably today and next week as to um, understanding areas of overlap and areas of important departure between our culture's concept of social justice and the historic Christian faith. This was just this week. Uh, Social justice is evil. Wow, that's quite a word. All right. A Southern Baptist pastor in South Texas says the church has a problem. Too much talk about justice. Racial justice, social justice, global justice, you name it. And he's heard enough. He's against all this justice. Not only that, but he wants the Southern Baptist Convention churches to stop preaching about it. Saying the whole idea of justice and equality is just way too liberal. The Reverend Grady Arnold of... Does anyone know how to say that? Correo? Quero. Has filed a resolution calling, and I underline this part, for the denomination to reject social justice as evil. Saying social justice is based on Marxist ideology, he decries it not about rights and compassion, but about liberal theology and compassion for groups that they deem as victims. Boy, there's just a bunch of trigger words there. All in. I thought, oh, this is a great encapsulation of the problem. There are some Christians who think the word social justice is just totally something different than Christianity, and it's something that ought to be dismissed, thrown away, and disposed of. And then there's other people that think that social justice is the gospel and that it's the same thing as the gospel. We used to call this, you know, 50 years ago, 50 to 100 years ago, 50 to 100 years ago, the social, social gospel. Um, so I wanted to try to kind of explore this issue um, because this is an important conversation that we are having in our culture. And so I want to say a couple words up front. Um, as usual, uh, some people are going to think I'm too liberal, and I'm going to get the emails about that. <laughs> and then some people are going to think I'm, I'm not doing enough, I'm not liberal enough to advocate for justice in quite the right way. I'm going to get those emails too. And so I'm just going to try to do the best I can to teach the scripture and the historic Christian position, and I'm going to ask for grace and ask you to kind of ha- try to have an open mind. There's going to be some things that you're going to agree with. There's going to be other things that might be challenging. If you bend more on the liberal side of things politically, there might be different things that challenge you than if you bend more toward the conservative side. So there'll be different parts of this, these two messages that will be challenging to different people in different ways. So have grace with me, have grace with each other. And let's just try to have a, a posture of learning and, and grappling with, with things together. Also, this lesson is not about being a conservative or a liberal. So I need you to try to take those glasses off for a few minutes. This isn't about politics. This is, I'm just trying to ask a very simple question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? This is the question I'm trying to ask and I'm trying to explore. And... When we think about what does it mean to be a disciple, what did Jesus call us to do? And trying to, I'm going to, I have some things built into the lesson to try to get us a little bit out of our politics. Now, there might be some things that have political implications, and we'll talk more about that next week. 
There might be things that influence our political policies at some point. But I think what we have to make sure that we, we have a strong foundation in place about our identity in Christ, about our mission as Christians. What are we supposed to be doing? And that we don't want to be all about like defending a particular political ideology. When that's the first thing that we go to up front, then we have veered off the path of the question of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. When our first, when our first thought is about, is about what does it mean to be an American is not the right question. The first thought ought to be what does it mean to be a disciple, right, Jesus. of Jesus, yeah. So this is the question that we are asking, all right? And I'm not claiming to have all these answers. I just want to explore some things that the Lord's been teaching me and highlighting to me um, recently and then within the larger context of the conversation we've been having this year about um, what does it mean to be created in the image of God. So um, just to review really quickly, our big picture idea for this series is that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. Our culture calls this human rights, right? That's not a biblical term, but that's, that's what our culture calls it, is human rights or human dignity. And that Christians have a long history of displaying that dignity within the church and advocating for that dignity in the broader culture. The, the case I've been trying to make all year is that this is the historic Christian position, we haven't always shown up for this conversation very well as Christians, but this is our legacy, and this ought to be what shapes us. And there's great value in looking back in history to see how the church has applied uh, this concept of the image of God in, in cultural issues that affected them in their day and in their time. So our first principle about human rights and equality is the protection of human dignity and that and this is the part I want you to really like underline or circle, that the Christian idea is that it's grounded in the image of God. That is the ground of, of our concept of human rights as Christians. Now, there's a lot of competing ideas about rights in our culture. And there's been a lot of competing conversations about rights in history. But for us as Christians, our concept of human rights is rooted and grounded in being created in the image of God. So when we talk about justice, when we talk about equality, the very first principle that we must know is that we have a very distinct and special view of human rights, and that is that it is grounded in the image of God. If you walk away from this teaching series this year and you know one thing, that's the thing I want you to know is that, it, a, that we have human rights are not given to us by the government. Human rights are not given to us by laws. Human rights, from a Christian worldview standpoint, are the result of being created in the image of God. And so any concept of justice that we have as Christians, any concept of justice that we ought to be advocating for is because we, we believe, we are convicted that all humans are created in the image of God. Are you with me? That is the ground of our concept of justice. We don't get rights from the government. We get rights from... Now, the government could protect our rights. The government can can guard our rights and our human dignity or it can exploit our, our dignity, but it doesn't give us dignity. Do you, do you see the difference between those two concepts? Okay. So here are some of the topics that we've covered this year. We've talked about human rights, religious rights, gender equality, racial equality, dignity for the dying, the disabled. We talked a little bit about creation care and stewardship, dignity in, in work protection of the unborn, care for the poor, and animal rights. These are all different ways that are connected to the concept of human rights. And is that this is all predicated on the idea that humans are created in the image of God. And that has shaped our, our kind of our beliefs, our worldview beliefs about each of these issues. Okay? So now we're going to look at Luke chapter 5. We're going to just be looking at a lot of scriptures today. 
So I invite you to turn there to Luke chapter 5. It's supposed to be about loving your enemies. Uh, well, let's go to um, Matthew 5. All right, we'll go to Matthew 5 because it is there. Uh, starting at verse 43 from Matthew 5, verse 43. Yeah, so from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. This is a very we've meditated on this before, and I just wanted to revisit it again because it's a very pivotal uh, part of the foundation of our our worldview as Christians. We're called to love our enemies. And I always say in this class, love must look like something, right? Mm-hmm. It can't just be words. Yeah. It has to look like something. And when it says, do you, you know, do you greet them? Do you, you know, do you only greet people that are like you? <laughs> in other words, what do we do when we see Someone who is working as a cashier in a restaurant who is obviously somebody who holds to a different worldview. You know, maybe there's a, there's a cashier at a restaurant that I like to frequent a lot who I would characterize as being gender confused or cross-dressing. What's my immediate reaction to that person? Is it to want to greet them? Say hello, what's your name? If you ever go out to lunch with me, I frequently, if a person's not wearing a a name badge, I'll ask them their name. And I'll thank them for their service often. If they have a name badge, I'll call them by their name. And I give them a greeting. Sometimes the Lord will prompt me to tell them that, you know, I just want you to know today that Jesus loves you. You is Is there something happening for you? You need to know that. To give them a greeting. Or do we, do we just judge them based on their appearance? That they're my cultural enemy, my religious enemy. Or do they, but be friendly, yeah. greet them. This is, this is part of what we've been calling in this class. God's common grace to us is that he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He doesn't differentiate blessing for people based on their worldview. So if you see somebody in your favorite restaurant and they're dressed like they're from another religion, they have certain clothing items on like they're from another religion, what is your immediate, is it to avoid them? Yes. Or is it to run to them and give them a greeting? And I'm trying to provoke your, your, a conversation with you and the Lord about this. Because Jesus is saying, that when we, when we identify our enemies, we want to be like Jesus. We want to give that person a greeting. What judgments would you want other people from other religions to make about Christians if a Christian was a jerk? Have you ever known a Christian to be a jerk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been one sometimes, too. Uh, yeah, okay. So, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want a Muslim to make a judgment about all Christians because they encountered one Christian who was a jerk. I've been at Christian conventions, honestly, where there were a lot of Christians acting like jerks. And I f- have felt bad for the service people watching us. And I felt like I'm in a difficult position and I have gone overboard to create a different impression in the name of Christ. So what I, one thing I've learned, and this is something for, you to, for all of us to try on, is that I've decided in my life I'm never going to um, react based on um, fear or my own judgments about the, pers- the kind of group that this person belongs to because I don't want people to make judgments about me because of the group that I belong to. 
And so I try to treat people as individuals and I give them the benefit of the doubt that they're probably, if I treat them with kindness, it's more likely than not that they will treat me with kindness. Now, they might not, they might be a jerk, but that doesn't affect me or my decision. My decision is still my own decision in how I choose to show up in that situation. And because they're looking at me as someone who names the name of Christ, if I'm, if I'm praying before a meal and they see me engaging in that action and then I'm acting like a jerk to them or I'm acting kind of offish to them or fearful, people have a way, you ever notice this? Like people have a way of, of intuitively knowing how we are reacting to them. Like even when we think it's kind of we're hiding it, yeah, we think we're sort of hiding it, but they, they detect when we're, when we're in fear, when we're just uncomfortable. They know that. And I just decided, like, hey, if I see somebody that is different than me, I just want to, if I start noticing, like, oh, I'm getting in a place of fear, I'm starting to have judgments about this, the group that I think this person belongs to, I start asking the Lord, dismantle those. Dismantle those judgments inside of me. Dismantle my fear. Give me faith. Give me love. And I start having this conversation with the Lord because I want to be aware of, Am I willing to greet this person? I mean, it's a very simple thing as a greeting. It's like the most foundational way of engaging someone is just to give them a greeting, to say hello, to call them by their name, to say thank you for your service. How is your day going? And that is just some basic foundational kindness. It's the first step of love. And so if we're going to be people and Christians who are known by love, we have to at least go in the first step of love. Like we're in the wading pool, right? Mm. The water's up to our ankles. If we can't even do that, then we need to maybe get into a conversation with the Lord. Let's keep pressing in. Let's go to Luke. There's, yeah. That, that verse. Yes. I think your thing is Luke 6. Luke 6. 27 Perfect. Thank you. I will fix the slide. Let's go to Luke chapter 15. Now, the great thing about Luke 15 is that we have these parables of lost things. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Sometimes we call this the prodigal son, right? And what I think is interesting in the, the lost things is that in the, in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus is a shepherd, who goes out looking for the lost sheep. In the parable of the coin, Jesus is represented as a poor woman looking for a coin. And in the parable of the lost son, he's, he's, the, the father is represented there as, I think, our heavenly father. And really, I, I struggle with this parable because I think it should it I get the um the translators uh the niceness of the the lost sheep the lost coin the lost son but there's there's a there's a part of me that wants to call retitle this this parable um the scandalous father because the level of love that has shown in this parable by the father would have been scandalous in the middle eastern middle eastern culture that he is being so, he, the, the son is so disrespectful in asking for an inheritance early. It's like the functional equivalent of telling your dad to drop dead so I can get your money already. And then he goes and he spends it carelessly. And he, he just frivolously spends it all away. And then he's going to come home? Where's the, where's the, like, the lecture of now son? first you insult me and now you want to come back this is scandalous levels of love that this father displays it's very uncomfortable where is the justice in this model where is the justice of getting what you deserve where is the where is the sowing and reaping of what the son sowed into in his corruption, in his sin. Where is the justice in the father when the son comes home? But the, but the father just accepts him back in because the son is so broken. 
And he come, but he comes to the right place. He finally brings his brokenness to the right place. He comes home. And so he comes to him in this humble position. But then what does the father do? What's the father's response? He honors him. He doesn't give him what he deserves. Verse 22, the father said, quick, bring his... Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. And they began to celebrate. See, we have this notion of justice that people need to get what they deserve on both sides. If I was the victim... You know, then I need reparations. If I was the, the oppressor, right, then I might need punishments. I mean, our, our whole system is built on sowing and reaping, getting what you deserve. But in the kingdom, this is what's so disturbing about Jesus, is that in the kingdom, we don't get what we deserve. Because yeah, we were dead in our sin. Yeah. We were the son who squandered the wealth, who was an affront to our father. And when we came to him in that moment of salvation, we said, I'm not even worthy to be called your child. But the father's scandalous, generous love. But do we think that there is that for the people in our culture? Do we think that God's scandalous love even extends to people from the, the opposite political party that we belong to. I have this friend, and she's a very strong Christian. She's a very strong Christian. And, uh, she, but she was always making these anti-Donald Trump posts on Facebook. No comments. And uh, she was really, like, against Trump. She feels like the president is just sort of morally vile. He, he viol- has violated women. She's not a Trump fan, okay? Um, and she's a very strong Christian. I'm going to emphasize that. Uh, but I finally private messaged her one day, and I said, do you think Jesus loves Donald Trump as much as he loves you? But it was a really good conversation, and I really commend her, because she'll probably watch this. She watches all my videos. And it was a really good conversation because um, it made both of us think, you know, and that who, are, who, are, who we think our enemies are. Who are the people that we think are vile? And is, does Jesus's, does the Father's scandalous love extend that far? Or does it only extend as far as my sins? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and, and on the other side, um, you know, does the father's scandalous love extend to members of ISIS who kill Christians, who behead them? So I want you to think about who the people are that you are fearful of, who you want to run away from, who you avoid, who you backtalk about on social media, who you backtalk about in your small groups, in your private conversations. Who do you backtalk about? Who do you gossip about? Does the Father's love extend that far? Who do you feel justified in criticizing? Who do you feel, and this is, this, this is the scandalous love of the Father. How would that affect how you pray for the president? That maybe that the that the Lord would bring people into Donald's Trump life, Trump's life who are who are strong Christians who could maybe um, show him the scandalous love of the Father, and who could disciple him and who could bring him along in holiness and show him a better way. Like, wouldn't that be a better way of of praying than pronouncing all these kind of what I call verbal curses over the president yes. all the time? you know, of how vile he is and some of the things that he's done. But, but wouldn't the same be true for 
our, our Muslim neighbors? Wouldn't the same be true for, for people who we consider our religious enemies? How could we pray for them? How could we become that person for them who speaks life into them, who displays the scandalous love of the Father to them? How do we become the hands and the feet of Jesus in that situation where we move past our fear? How do we do that? That takes some, some, some bravery, right? That, that's some brave stuff right there. Let's keep going. Let's look at Luke chapter 22. What I want you to notice here is the pattern as Jesus is about to be arrested. First, in Luke chapter 22 is the betrayal of Judas. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Did Jesus know that G- Judas was going to betray him? Mm-hmm. He knew sure. the whole time, probably. Yeah. He knew from the beginning. Did he shy away from bringing him into his inner circle? No. 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 He knew from the beginning how things would play out. But he still invited him into fellowship. He still put him in charge of the money. That's honor. Jesus still treats him with honor and dignity, even though he knew the outcome. Mm-hmm. Like, if you thought that, if you knew, okay, I know that this guy's going to, like, kill me in three years. I'm not putting him in charge of the money. I'm not putting him in charge of anything. I'm going to just, like, politely have him in my group and then really not address him, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that's the flesh. But... That's not how Jesus goes. He, he still is bringing him into the inner circle. He's still there, part of all the teachings. He still sees all the miracles. He still experiences people rising from the dead, and, and they put him in charge of the money. What I want you to notice is that Jesus doesn't shy away, even for people that he knows are his enemies. He brings them and invites them in because We've talked about this many times in the class before. Jesus sees people differently than we do. He doesn't just see how they are on the outside in the natural. He, he sees people in the supernatural. He see because he sees everything, you know. And I think what's interesting is that, that we also have this portrait of Simon Peter in this very same chapter. And Jesus warns him. In verse 31, that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fall. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows that Peter's going to deny him. But what does he do? He prays for him. He loves him. He's, it's not a conversation about, Peter, how could you? After all this time, you, were, you weren't even just part of the 12. You were part of the three, the inner circle of the inner circle. How could you do this to me? There's no conversation about that. He just says, gives Peter a warning. He says, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. Like, it's going to be a rough day ahead, but I've prayed for you. And... When things fall apart, it's okay to come back. How often do we emulate that? Like in a person, with a person in our life that we know that, man, why are they acting this way? They are breaking the relationship here. And we know what's coming. We see the folly on the horizon. And it's like, hey, it's okay. Like a hard day is coming. A hard season is coming, but it's okay. Because even though the choices you're sowing into right now might, might not like work out very well for you, I just want you to know there's always a way back. Mm-hmm. There's always a way back. My door is going to still be open for you. Mm-hmm. And so this is Jesus's way, is that, even when he knows betrayal is coming, he pulls people in. This is a very hard teaching because this is a scandalous amount of love. Because our, our, our tendency is to protect, right? I don't want to get hurt. What do I have to do so I don't get hurt? If I walked around like that, nobody would be getting free. <laughs> 
because it's, you know, like things happen. People, if people are demonized, they get angry at you. Their demons are telling them all kinds of unhelpful messages about me. It's hard. But I know that love, there's value in love and pulling them closer and making a way back. And I, I don't know. I, I think that even when Peter disowns Jesus at the end of chapter 22, What does Peter remember? He remembers Jesus' words. Verse, what is that? 61. Yeah, he remembers the words of Jesus. The cock would crow. Before the, the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Who knows if he also remembered the words of Jesus that it's okay, I've prayed for you. Comfort your brothers. Hopefully he remembered those words too, but it seems like Jesus had to kind of restore him at the end of John. Like, have you ever been in so much shame that you just, you need your shame addressed? Some of us, I've been in that much shame where I needed someone to address my shame because I, I had messed up the relationship so much. And what if Jesus had come to, to Peter at the end of, of the Gospel of John and said, Peter, I told you, I warned you, you still fell in this hole anyways. Right? Yeah. He doesn't do that. He just, he just restores him to honor. He says, feed my sheep. He restores him to a place of honor. He sees Peter's shame and he meets him in that. Romans chapter 8 Verse 1 says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. And then I'm going to drop down to verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. God. You did not receive a spirit that has made you a slave to fear. You have received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is a scandalous level of love. That the creator of the universe wants to be my father. That's crazy. Like, I've, I've done so much to wreck that relationship. Like, I've been the worst rebellious teenager ever. And the father says, call me daddy. And he makes Jesus my big brother, and he says, I'm going to make you a co-heir. You're going to govern the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to govern the angels. I'm going to put you in a place of honor. I don't deserve that. That is a scandalous amount of love. And this is what we are called to share with the world is that this is the love that is available for them and that we are to live in front of them. Jesus's vision of justice is that he wants to create a spiritual family with our enemies. He puts together this band of disciples of a tax collector and these fishermen, the rich, the poor, the marginalized, The the zealot, He's got all the political parties all mixed in there together. And he says, mine is going to be the new way. See, we got to think about ourselves in a, a very circumspect kingdom way, that the kingdom way is not the political way. Jesus' vision of justice is to create a spiritual family 
with our political and our religious and our social enemies. And we're going to be like knit together in the spirit realm and we're going to do a great thing in the name of Jesus. And I'm going to have to do it with people that out in the world tell me are my enemies. But I've decided in my heart, these are not my enemies because of Jesus. Jesus' vision of justice is to pursue closeness, relational closeness with people that the world tells me are dangerous people. Dangerous people. These are the people that, that Jesus wants to get close with. Well, how can, I, how can Jesus get close with them if there's no one there to ever preach the gospel, to, to ever bring the scandalous love of Jesus to them? Someone's going to have to do that. In Jesus' vision of justice, we honor those who, who hurt us. That is so hard. That is, how, what does honor begin to look like in that situation? That's a big conversation to have with the Lord. Is what does honor look like when, with an abusive parent or an abusive former spouse? And, and it doesn't mean that we have to automatically like be in a, the same type of relationship that we had before, but maybe there's something that Jesus is calling us into. Maybe not. But maybe we could at least ask him, like, is there anything here that you want me to do? Maybe not. I don't know those answers. Those aren't answers are the same for everybody. But we have to at least, like, like, have you ever had a child in your life who's hurt your feelings? And you want to stay in relationship with them. Like, what does that look like? How do I continue to have honor for this child? Just as the father honors me. Those are hard questions, aren't they? Because we are so conditioned in our culture that everything is about what you earn and what you deserve and getting what you deserve. And, and Jesus' vision of justice is adoption. That he has become our father and Jesus has become our big brother. That this is the vision that God has for his. This is the foundation of justice. And it is so upside down. Right? It just, this does not feel intuitive to us. This is, this, this is disturbing. Well, it's not intuitive to our human nature. Exactly. And this is why we have to renew our minds in the Holy Spirit. So we're going to watch a clip now from a, a documentary called Compelled by Love. It's the story of a missionary named Heidi Baker. She's a missionary in Mozambique. And this is just an excerpt. I've kind of put some clips together. We might go a little bit over today, but I hope that you'll just watch this with these things in mind because this is the best example I've found of of a person in our time who tries to actually live out the scandalous love of the Father in her life. And when I first saw this, I was like, this is disturbing. Because I don't know if I'm up for this. But it started a conversation with the Lord and I. And I hope it'll start a conversation with you and the Lord of what he might call you into. He, maybe he's not calling you Mozambique, but maybe he's calling you to do something. You know. So we're going to watch this clip right now with Heidi Baker and her husband, Roland. The Bakers persevered for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heidi planted churches in the garbage dumps and rescue children one by one. A lot of our children came from here. They were living in the dump with no parents. So there have been hundreds of them that live there at our careers now. But we never take children who have someone to care for them here. And now instead of taking them to the center, we help them in their houses. That's why we have the school and feeding projects and stuff to keep them here because even if it's an old lady grandma it's better for them to stay with family members when these orphan spirits whether they're full orphans that we take care of in africa coming home i watch something change in them i often tell this story when they come into our house and we always have holy chaos on Sunday nights and they come in 20, 30 kids and the older kids just 
come in and they open the fridge and they drink the Coke and they eat the yogurt and anything else they find, anything in that fridge, they know it's theirs and they can have it. So they just go in there and they eat everything, they drink everything. If they want three Cokes, they drink three Cokes. We don't tell them, you know, it's Sunday. They can just have whatever they want in that house and they draw pictures and no matter how their pictures come out we say oh they're beautiful and we we stick them on the refrigerator and we just say you're amazing you're awesome you're an artist and it's just so fun and then we watch the other kids who don't know who they are these other little kids that are still have an orphan spirit and they walk in and they don't know what to do they don't know they can open the fridge the other kids, they jump on the couch, they they tell the dogs to sit. Next to eat all the time. Yes, you do. All the time you do that. All the time. And those are kids who know they're adopted. You know, they just know, I'm family, I'm free, God loves me, mom and dad love me, I can do anything and it's good. And I have this thing, if they crash the trucks, Say you hand over keys to a bunch of trucks when you're feeding the multitudes and they're all driving trucks and two or three of them crash the truck. What do you do? Um, you give them keys again. You say, slow down. I love you. Here's the keys. And you let them try again. I was a street kid 12 years ago. To me, life in the street wasn't easy. Very hard, very difficult. I would put it this way, it's hell. When I look at kids just dying in the bush or in the garbage or under trees, I just think all they really need to make it is to know who they are, to know their sons and daughters. They're not orphans. So when Mama Heidi took me in, she, she, she doesn't like, like locking the doors, like get out. She let all of us inside. So, you know, I become this son in the house. So I'll go in her house. And Mama Heidi's purse is just like right there, not hiding it. So I took my, you know, I stole from her many times, you know. And I remember when they look at myself in the mirror, I said, you can be a good boy. You don't have to steal anymore. And then it didn't stop right away. It took time, but I really hated stealing anymore. I said, no, I can't do this anymore. Mama Heidi hugged me and Papa Roland said, you know, you know, você não in Portuguese means you are a son. I go, what? Your son? You're white, play people? No way. Um, you know, it's like I'm black this way, you're white that way. You took me because I'm poor, but to be a son, forget it. You know, it's, it's too much for me. So. It just, it just, it brought a different, it just changed my life. It's about letting him be my papa and, and just saying, wow. <laughs> I have this picture sometimes where I just have this, it's a visual picture and I step on his feet and he walks with me and I just get to go along for the ride. And sometimes people can look at that and say, wow, you're doing amazing things or you're doing incredible things and you're just standing on his feet and he's doing everything and you just get to go along for the ride and you can be that childlike. It was probably three, three years ago where we were just getting tired, okay? Just getting tired of getting stoned and having things thrown at us and getting beaten. And But I was, I was just contending with God. Are we missing something and very clearly the Lord said you need to honor them don't just bust into their village on their during their time of prayer and just set up a, a film and just start shouting louder than they're crying out we said line up all the people we put the chiefs there we put the chiefs secretary we but we bring in the king of the village the queen of the village we sit them on the best chairs we can find and we we make the best coffee we can the freshest bread we can we thank them 
for the privilege of coming into their village. And then one by one, we have the internationals and the nationals go very low. They say their name. They say their profession. So it could be it could be a professor from Harvard. It could be a scientist from Perth. It could be an electrician from Poland. Welcome, welcome, And I asked the chiefs and the kings and the queens and the secretaries of that village, teach us something, uh, um, something of the beauty of what they understand about their village, where we used to not be welcome now. There's this open, open arms. Each week, villages run to Jesus. Hundreds of churches are planted among what was an unreached people group, the Makua tribe. Heidi prays for a woman who has suffered for years with leprosy and could not walk. Jesus 100% healed her. And Agatha dances the night, worshipping away. Agatha returns the next morning to testify about her glorious healing. They want Jesus. They said, yeah, when lepers get healed, you know, she's healed. Agatha, she's healed. She said she never slept so good her whole life. <laughs> and she had Starbucks coffee. And she had Starbucks, yeah. <laughs> and since this time, we have never been stoned. So that doesn't mean they all start believing um, in the love of the Lord Jesus as we do. But not one of them has said we could not pray for them. Not one of them has told us we couldn't go back to their village. The gospel is good news, not good history. Because when it is preached, it happens. God gave Heidi a sign and a wonder. When she preaches, God performs miracles every single day. The blind see. Deaf babies hear their mother's voice for the first time as a sign that he is opening the ears of a nation to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mama! She said that she just saw smoke. She saw like white smoke. And after we prayed, Agora, now, Avanu. She said now, she just told us now she sees no, no more smoke that she just sees clearly. So thank you, Jesus. The Lord told me to have her wash her eyes and then she would see. So if I hear something like that, to actually do something as an act of faith, then she's gonna come to Jesus now because she can see. And she said, of course, you'll follow him. Right now, what you see is God's social justice program. What is it? It's the love compels us to do things. You know, this is one man and one woman. They, they've been there about 20 years now in Mozambique. They have a huge ministry. They've planted about 10,000 churches. Wow. And they just go into the bush. And Heidi has, does, the, you saw there kind of her little routine of talking to the leaders of the village. They bring out their sick. She, she and her team start praying for the sick. Deaf people start hearing, lame people start walking, blind people start seeing, and then imagine what happens to the openness of the gospel. Mm. That sounds kind of biblical, doesn't it? Yes. It kind of sounds like in the book of Acts, some things that we see. When, uh, who's, the, uh, who's the evangelist that goes to Samaria? Philip. Philip the evangelist in chapter 8 goes to Samaria and is, does signs and wonders, and then people start being open to the gospel. That's, that's what that looks like. And, and, and she has schools and medical facilities and all of these things. But if you notice that the ground of everything is love, yeah. embracing them as people, people. Yeah. The, and that their culture will be transformed sure. inevitably, but embracing them as people and bringing the kingdom to them and putting the kingdom on display 
casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. She's seen hundreds of people be raised from the dead. But the ground of everything is the level of love that Heidi has for these people. And the love is genuine. And I think that's why the miracles come. Because that is the context in which miracles come. Is when you truly love the people. And here she is, you know, did you miss the part about her, them getting stoned all the time? And getting rocks thrown at them, getting beat up, robbed. And how many of you, like, find it a little disturbing that the children could just come in and drink all the Coke and do all this stuff? And, but do you, do you see how the spirit of adoption, that the identity, that they know who they are and how that begins to change them and transform them? Thousands upon thousands of orphans that they've dealt with. And then she calls these other children who haven't yet figured out who they are. They haven't yet had that Romans 8 experience of knowing that they're a child of the kingdom. They're orphan children. They look confused. Like, how is it that you're going into the refrigerator and, and commanding the dog to sit and doing all this stuff? Why was that working? But that is how love can change people. See, we don't have to, like, change people with our words. And it's not that we... See, what love has become in our culture is that we're just going to love people in their sinfulness and we're going to leave them in their sinfulness. And that's not Jesus' vision of love. Jesus' vision of love is, I love you in your sinfulness, and then I call you into something that you were destined to be. Because I have a prophetic vision of your life, and I know who the Father can be for you, and I know how it can change you and transform you and set you free. And so... I want to encourage you today to begin to think about the questions of justice from a much more kingdom-oriented point of view than just a political point of view. That God's justice program, some parts of it don't make any sense in our system. It's scandalous, reckless love that honors us and then shows us who we are and calls us to a relationship, and that's the relationship that transforms us. It's the relationship that changes us. Okay, I'm just going to, I got a couple more minutes on this clip, but maybe I'll try to work it into the lesson next week because it's really good. Um, So just going to kind of leave it there. It's a little disturbing right now maybe for some of you. But uh, let's continue the conversation next week and continue to unpack this. And what we're going to look at next week is, what are some of the concepts of justice in our culture? What does our culture tell us that social justice ought to look like? And then how does that compare with what we talked about today in God's kingdom understanding of justice? All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, this was just the most discombobulated mess. And so I just ask that you would be in it. Um, just your word and the best example I know of what this can look like. Lord, I just ask for grace and a vision for how we can live out your kingdom values in our own complicated, affluent culture. Um, Lord, it says, we read today that you have not given us a spirit of fear. Lord, I ask that you would show us this week that you are the God of tomorrow. That you are a God who isn't in fear. And that you don't want your people to live in fear. That you are sovereign over all of our tomorrows. That there would be a place where we can stand in your presence as your children, as your adopted children. And that we would be so blown away by your reckless love for us that we would be compelled to bring that love to others. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.